It's time for the Bible Geek. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern, deconstruct, super-powered demigod. Time once again for a Bible Geek, and I'm Robert M. Price, your host. I'm always eager to get into the scriptures with you, and uh, that's what I'm going to do today. Okay, I got a request for a south-central Nepalese accent. This is probably nowhere near the mark, but let's uh, go anyway. Have you read any of a Simonian Origin for Christianity, a series of short articles by Raja Parvus and Tim Widowfield, published on org. Parvus and Widowfield build on your work in The Amazing Colossal Apostle, but they develop a new hypothesis that Simon Magus and his followers were the authors of both the early Pauline corpus and the earliest narrative gospel. I think the series is well worth a read. It can be found easily by searching on Google for Simonian Origin. Um, let me just say, yeah, I, I have read the first few of them just recently and am very impressed. I really hope these guys will uh, make this into a book. Okay, part of us discusses at some length Paul's visits to Jerusalem in Galatians. It occurred to me that however you look at it, whoever wrote the beginning of Galatians could not have been one of the very first founders of Christianity because the whole point of it is the tension between the author and the established leaders. Unless, how do we know the author is talking about established Christian leaders? What if he is talking about going to Jerusalem to meet the Jewish leaders? After all, Galatians emphasizes that the entire purpose of the first visit was to meet Cephas. It does not say Peter or Simon. The high priest of the temple at around that time was Caiaphas, but in fact these are the same word in Hebrew. Cephas and Caiaphas are just two different ways of writing it in Greek. It's interesting to note that Caiaphas, like Peter, is not a proper name but a nickname or title. By tradition, the high priest was actually named Joseph and called Caiaphas the Rock. Uh, yeah, I make that connection uh, in a slightly different way in um, my uh, essay, uh, the neo, what was it? In the beginning was the deed, a chapter of my uh, book, uh, deconstructing Jesus. Anyway, am I correct in thinking that the Pauline epistles mention only the name Peter in Galatians two seven and two eight, uh, never using the name Simon Peter or Simon Bar Jonah? So, except for two versions uh, verses in Galatians, the Pauline epistles only refer to the name Cephas. I believe that's correct, and um, that's one of the hints that uh, that those passages in Galatians with Peter are an interpolation, just based on the interpolator's assumption that Cephas and Peter were the same guy. Of course, they need not have been, for the reason you just pointed out. Uh, Cephas could have been other people, like Caiaphas, etc., we tend to think of the Sadducees and high priests as the very opposite of the early Christian mystical or apocalyptic movement. 
But how do we know that? Maybe some of the high priests had mystical inclinations that overlap with those of the early Christ cult. Perhaps there was some personal association between the two groups, publicly or in secret. Certainly Jerusalem 2,000 years ago was a much smaller place than the world we're used to. I don't think it's implausible that a serious mystical practitioner, such as the author of Galatians, might be able to simply go to Jerusalem and meet the high priest without any prior connection. If the early Christians did have a personal connection to Caiaphas, that adds a new resonance to the gospel story of Jesus' death at the hands of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Let me just uh, pause and say, in accordance with what you're saying, remember in the Gospel of John, the beloved disciple is known to the high priest, interestingly. According to some tradition, uh, John, son of Zebedee, was a priest in some way. I don't know, nobody really knows what's going on there, but uh, can't just snip it off. It has to enter into the mix somehow. And uh, as Margaret Barker has shown, uh, a lot of apocalyptic and a lot of New Testament imagery comes right out of the the temple mysticism. So, yeah, it's not that, that odd. And um, we're told that uh, some of the uh, the priests joined up uh, with Christians in, in the book of Acts. Again, uh, Acts is not simply to be trusted, but who knows what interesting bits of accurate data it's preserved here and there of course all of this is pretty mushy and full of maybes but anyway. the only other person that the author of galatians meets on his first trip to jerusalem is james the lord's brother such a common name that could refer to anybody whose brother is some kind of lord maybe caiaphas the lord of the temple had a brother named james but it's interesting to note that james the just is traditionally associated with the temple and the high priesthood right, right you are that's right Look at Eisenman's work. Christian sources say that James at some point functioned as an alternative high priest, and he was killed by being thrown from the temple. Josephus supposedly wrote that James the Just was killed by the incumbent high priest, who was the brother-in-law of Caiaphas, although Josephus does not specify the motive for that killing. Parvis points out that the pseudo-Clementines addressed James himself as the Lord of the early church. Of the Holy Church, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, is that, was that some sort of um, factional, uh, like Dead Sea Scrolls-type conflict between the uh, entrenched establishment and alternative priests, which the uh, Zadokite sect uh, was? Also, what do you think is the meaning of the disciple who was known to the high priest in John 18.15? Whoops, sorry about that. Jumped the gun. Why this mysterious unnamed character? His role in the plot hardly seems necessary, so why is he mentioned at all? Based on his pairing with Peter, one could readily assume the disciple known to the high priest is the beloved disciple, but why does the evangelist not simply call him that? Perhaps the entry into the high priest's court sequence in John chapter 18 was intended to parallel in some way the entry into the empty tomb sequence in John chapter 20. Interesting. Uh, I think the uh, beloved disciple is a uh, fictive retrojection of uh, 
the uh, evangelist himself and perhaps successors who were the who claimed to be the paraclete who had come to reveal the esoteric meaning of the teaching of Jesus and uh, again that might fit in with the temple business since the temple was involved with uh, Jewish and New Testament mysticism a la Barker uh, let's see um, this character, the disciple known to the high priest, is obviously not evidence for equating Cephas with Caiaphas. The author of John clearly is not saying that Peter is Caiaphas. However, it might be suggestive of some vague connection between the disciples and Caiaphas, which we can only see dimly reflected in the Gospels as we have them. And that's from Saif Wait a minute, I'm losing my video here. Saif Asad al-Satya in Chicago. Um, I, I think these are all possibilities, and again, there's only so much evidence, but it's there are different interesting ways of construing them, and uh, it's certainly a good idea to start with the anomalous data that no conventional paradigm has ever been able to make uh, good sense, and uh, to start there and see if uh, what you generate makes new sense with uh, the more familiar data, which is what you're doing. So it's all speculative, but that's really kind of all we've got. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, there's a PS. There is a serious-looking paper arguing that Cephas Caiaphas uh, by one... Uh, that Cephas equals Caiaphas by one A.A.M. Vanderhoven. But looking at his other work, he seems to be an apologist, albeit an erudite apologist. I'm, I'm not uh, familiar with that. Thanks, though. Floyd says, I heard you state in previous podcasts that Jesus didn't fulfill messianic prophecies in the Old Testament simply because there aren't any. The New Testament took the Old Testament verses and gave them new esoteric meaning not found in the original context. The verses are either individual lament psalms, like Psalm 22, enthronement or birth oracles, like Isaiah 9-6, or simply taken out of context, Hosea 11-1. I came across an article by Rabbi Michael Skoback from the Jews for Judaism website called Why Don't the Jews See Jesus in the Scripture? where he claims there are actual messianic verses in the Bible that are, that, quote, are so clear that Jews and Christians are in agreement that they describe the Messiah. And, quote, he offers three passages. A shoot shall come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equality for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, <laughs> the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursling will not. Uh, the nursing child shall 
uh, play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den, without harm, obviously. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9. Uh, this, okay, another one, uh, this is, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this name by which, this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord uh, is our righteousness. Uh, similarly, see Jeremiah 37 through 10 and 33, 14 through 18. So far, let me just say that I go along with Thomas L. Thompson and many others recognizing texts, including these as, uh, as birth oracles or possibly enthronement oracles, because there they use the imagery of the king, the heir to the throne becoming the son of uh, Jehovah by virtue of his coronation. Uh, it's formed critically. There's really no room for doubt on that. Uh, this was The same thing was said to herald the birth or the reign of uh, kings all over the, the Middle East. I think Thompson says there are hundreds of these that survive, even in our fragmentary evidence about the ancient Near East. Uh, in the Jeremiah case, the, this name is uh, Zedekiah, uh, the, the Lord is our righteousness. So, so I think that's even more specific. It's not talking about some some you know, vague f- theoretical figure of the future. Okay, here, here's the third one uh, from Ezekiel 37, 24 through 28. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. They shall live in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, in which your ancestors lived. They and all their chi- they and their children and their children's children shall live there forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will bless them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary among them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then shall the nations know that I am the Lord, uh, that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is among them forevermore. Uh, see also Ezekiel 34, 23 through 31. Well, uh, this seems to me to be a step toward messianism because given its exilic uh, background, it uh, seems to envision the restoration of a Jewish Davidic monarchy. Uh, it assumed uh, and reasonably uh, that um, Davidic descendants were still around and uh, that one of them would uh, come to power uh, in uh, Haggai and Zechariah have that hope they thought Zerubbabel was the one well wait a minute doesn't it say David himself well I guess it could be construed as a belief in a 
return of uh, the historical David, just like uh, the return of King Arthur someday. But even if that's the case, that's not said to be Jesus. Uh, and uh, it's not clear that other that the Jews thought that the Messiah would be David himself. Uh, so if you if you needn't take it as literally a reference to David, rather simply a Davidic Davidic heir, it does envision the eventual restoration of uh, Jewish independence. Um, and there you're you're on your way to a Messiah. But it, the Messiah figure doesn't have the centrality. It just means there'll be new Jewish kings. The, the monarchy will be restored. That's not quite the idea of the Messiah. Okay, um, uh, back to the question. The Isaiah 11 passage seems to be talking about the continuing reign of the Davidic line, but aren't the Jeremiah and Ezekiel passages talking about the reign of the Davidic line continuing once again after the Babylonian exile comes to an end? If so, can't they be considered messianic prophecy since they express hope for some future Davidic king? Sorry, I jumped the gun. I just addressed that. Um, I see less reason to see Jeremiah in that uh, light, especially since the name Zedekiah is in there, and he was contemporary with um, with Jeremiah, so I, I don't see that as a futuristic prediction. Uh, and uh, these these passages had to be reinterpreted in Judaism to make them predictions of a definitive uh, king, the Messiah. That's quite a bit different from saying that the that uh, Jewish independence will be restored one day. Uh, let's see. Um, who's this and from? Uh, this is from David Shipley in Seattle. I've heard you speak several times in your podcast on the verse in Galatians where Paul or whoever remarks on what large letters he is using to write as a sign that it's really him. I remember you referencing how this is a bit absurd, as if one would describe how one's pen is blotting through to the next page in a letter. Since you could see that for yourself, right? I was listening to Mark Goodacre's New Testament podcast, and in episode two, he comments on the same verse, saying that it is likely Paul dictated all of his letters because this is how letters were written in ancient times, and the bit of Galatians with a large letter comment was a moment where he took the pen himself from the scribes as if to underline the gravity of his writing. Do you think this is just speculation? It appears so to me. And do you agree with Goodacre on the dictated form of all the letters attributed to Paul and others. Uh, yeah, that's very likely. They used amanuenses, uh, secretaries. But, uh, and that certainly is the point of, of this comment in Galatians. It's um, explaining why you have an actual Pauline signature, but my point is you wouldn't point that out. It would be obvious from simply seeing the signature in a different handwriting, and especially since this is, was customary to do. So the fact that we have it pointed out, uh, which we wouldn't need to have if, if it were actually a signature from Paul, uh, means that it's like saying that, uh, gee, I got uh, cheap paper, the ink is blotting to the other side, as if they can't see that. So this is a, um, like, I, I think I used this example before in Robert E. Howard's great novel, um, The Hour of the Dragon, his one uh, Conan novel. He has Conan behind a drape overhearing 
uh, the plotting of this uh, cabal of conspirators, and one of them says, uh, here, I'm, I take my knife and draw a map in the tabletop. Here is this, here is that. He wouldn't say that, right? That's just for Conan, who hears it, or really for the reader, Right, it's it's uh, the same sort of a trick, uh, and uh, since you're not there to hear it, what would he be talking about? Howard wanted to make sure you knew, uh, and I think it's the same thing here. It's a sign of artificiality. Um, okay, um, this one Ooh, from. Oh um, I don't think I have the name here. I don't know how that happens. Uh, let's see. Stereotypical Scott. Okay. Greetings, Dr. Price. I'm fascinated by the historical Jesus versus mythological Jesus debate. I find the evidence on the mythicist side convincing, but the historical side has a nice, almost believable story for the origin of Christianity. Tell me a speculative story from the mythicist's point of view on how Christianity could have gotten started that fits what evidence we have. Uh, well, what I think happens is that uh, you do have a bit of evidence in the Old Testament, as Geo Wiedengren pointed out, that uh, Yahweh was already considered the dying and rising God, that his death and resurrection were part of his primordial battle with and victory over Leviathan, which led to his becoming king of the gods of Israel and uh, and creating the world from the remains of the dragon or dragons just like Marduk in Babylonian mythology and uh so um going you know centuries uh, beyond that when early christians have a dying and rising savior uh, who uh, is named Yehoshua, Yahweh is salvation. Uh, to me, that could very easily imply uh, that you have an avatar of Yahweh on earth, like the Theophanies of the Old Testament, where Yahweh appears as the angel of Yahweh. And uh, and people say, oh my God, have I seen Yahweh and lived to tell it? Uh, and uh, so it's the same sort of a thing, like an avatar, we might say. And that that's, uh, and that uh, this uh, that more and more stories were told about him, primarily based on Old Testament stories, when uh, for needs of when institutional needs uh, compelled some to historicize Jesus, so they could say, "Oh yes, we had a historical founder who gave us the straight stuff." Uh, you heretics are just making it up as you go, based on visions, but uh, we have it from the horse's mouth. And I, I think that's uh, that's basically what happened. And that explains why we have wildly different views among the ancients as to when Jesus lived. Um, that seems more compatible with, uh, with uh, people trying to place Jesus in recent history, just as uh, Herodotus and others tried to figure out when Hercules would have lived, since they assumed there must have been a real person at the base of the myth. Um, and of course, it always had to be recent history. The more links you had in the chain, the the more uh, vague the connection became between your current leaders and what they teach, and what they claim Jesus told their immediate preceptors. 
Uh, let's see now. This is from Count Lercula. Can anything be said regarding a first-century tent-maker from the city of Tarsus, an identity attributed to the epistolarian Saul or Paul? Was he someone other than Paul? Was he anyone at all? Uh, well, uh, it's. I guess all you can really say is it's entirely plausible that you would have a, a, a missionary, uh, whatever you want to call him, who traveling around would need uh, support and uh, that uh, he in the same way that uh, um, well, Rabbi Shammai the Pharisee in uh, first century BCE uh, he was uh, a carpenter and uh, to, to make ends meet uh, the, these guys weren't subsidized and the rabbis did that because they didn't want to be on anybody's payroll they wanted to say what they thought uh, the Torah meant, not what their patrons might like it to mean. And uh, that comes up in the Pauline epistles, too, that um, Paul does not want to be indebted to anyone, though he did uh, take, you know, the way it's written, he's presented as gladly receiving gifts uh, sent to him and uh, in, in uh, times of emergency from the Philippians and the Thessalonians. But he makes this big deal about how though apostles have every right to receive support from their congregations, and he quotes Deuteronomy and, he, and uh, the, the Jesus saying uh, the labor is worthy of his hire and all that. Um, this, uh, th this, however, does not govern his practice. He doesn't take advantage of it because he doesn't want to leave room for anybody to misconstrue it and say, look, the guy's just a charlatan. Uh, he's just bilking people to, to get rich off him. And he said, so though it would be legitimate, uh, he, he, he would rather go beyond uh, his rights and um, you know, keep it all above board by working with his hands. And that would fit the, uh, the picture in Acts that he was a tent maker. So there's nothing implausible about it. But, of course, there's no way to know if that is uh, actually true of Paul or not. I think you can only say that it's it's not some sort of danger signal that we're dealing with fiction. It's, uh, it's certainly plausible, uh, but who the heck knows, ultimately. Um, okay, uh, okay, this is from Blueberry Sky better known as Lord of the Skies. He says, um, I was on an internet blog not long ago, and I came across this passage by another blogger debating the historicity of the Gospel of Mark. Here was a little excerpt from that conversation. The author of Mark, quote, the author of Mark put hints in his writing that it's not real. The biggest one is that he turned the pagan gods, Castor and Pollux, into the characters of James and his brother John. Castor and Pollux are always presented as Castor first. James is always mentioned first. It's always Castor and Pollux, and it's always James and John. In art, Castor and Pollux are always portrayed as flanking other gods. In Mark, James and John ask if they could flank Jesus in heaven. The biggest hint is that Jesus gives James and John the nickname of Sons of Thunder. Castor and Pollux are the sons of, Ju of Zeus or Jupiter, the god of thunder. Uh, end of 
quote from the blog. Dr. Price, are you aware of this uncanny parallel? Are these assessments true? And how likely is this a coincidence, or is it Mark purposely using the mimesis technique to write fiction? Uh, I do agree with this completely, and I've pointed it out in a couple of my books. Um, uh, Also, you could add what uh, John Allegro pointed out, that uh, Boanerges, which is uh, supposed to be Sons of Thunder, doesn't really mean that. And uh, at the most, I mean, at the closest, it could be a garbled versions of uh, a half Hebrew, half Greek, Beni Orges, Sons of Rage, but uh, you know that's a guess, and he says he prefers the explanation that this is based on an unattested, I mean, we don't have any actual references to it in ancient sources, though they're fragmentary, but it would fit the uh, philology of the Sumerian language if if it was another version of Geshpu'anor, which um, um, would, would uh, the Gesh would be the prefix, whereas uh, Gase in Boanerges is a suffix, but it's very common many times in the Bible that the, uh, the same element can be a prefix in one name, a uh, suffix in another, like, uh, thea, well, Greek Theodora, gift of God, Dorothea, gift of God, uh, same thing here, and that uh, Geshpuanor would mean upholder of the vault of heaven, well, there you go. That'd be Castor and Pollux again. So I do think that's the case. Now, what's impossible to answer is whether Mark understood this and was purposely historicizing this admixture of pagan mythology, or if he had inherited a more or less historicized version. And which alternative looks better to you is probably a function of uh, your larger paradigm of uh, how uh, uh, the Christian myth got historicized. But yeah, I think uh, the uh, parallel is a striking one and uh, that it's uh, it's no coincidence. So yeah, I think it does attest the mythological character of it. Um, there are similar um, considerations for Peter also. Um, let me see... Uh, now, is this from him also? I have a different typeface, but it's... Uh, maybe it is uh, the Lord of the Skies here. Uh, let's keep going. I'm aware Mark has used the... Yeah, it must be the same. The mimesis technique numerous times, according to Dennis R. MacDonald, author of the Homeric Epics and the Gospel of Mark. Oh, indeed, a fascinating book. If Mark is writing fiction, we have a domino effect that makes Matthew and Luke fictional as well, because they copied at least 80% of Mark. Don't you agree? Yes, I I do. If these assessments are true, I'm totally convinced that the Gospels are a work of fiction with a little bit of real history sprinkled in. What is your take? Uh, Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, there are the bits of history aren't necessarily some dimly remembered truth about a historical Jesus, though of course that's possible. But references to Pilate and so on—I mean, he was a historical character, and uh, you—that doesn't mean, however, that any text in which he's mentioned is historical, right? The the Hellenistic novels frequently mentioned known historical figures, just like modern historical novels do, right? Uh, let's see, let's see. 
Um, this from Dan. He says, uh, concerning Luke twenty thirty-eight. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Is the second part of that verse, for all live to him, a later redaction which alters the first statement? Without the addition, it reads that Christ is n- not a God of the dead, which may mean those whose names are not written in the book of life. Hmm, is there any relation with Second Corinthians two fifteen through 16 where Christ is for believers and unbelievers, life unto life and death unto death, respectively? I kind of take that as more of a conceptual parallel than than two references to the same thing. I I do think that Luke has added, for all live to him, possibly based on 2 Maccabees, where uh, one of the uh, seven sons who are being martyred, uh, uh, tortured and martyred, say something to this effect I think in pretty much the same words that don't they they don't need to worry about losing their bodies losing their physical lives because uh, uh, they're they'll get them again eventually and all live unto God so they're not really going to die and uh, I think we know that uh, at least Acts is familiar with second Maccabees because of the borrowing from the conversion of Heliodorus applied to Paul uh, and in the uh, Markan version, it uh, doesn't say all live unto him. And the difference is that that the Lucan addition would fit in with Luke's idea that you know th- that the righteous don't have to wait for resurrection; that they're going to go to paradise immediately, like the thief on the cross does, so that uh, there is an uninterrupted life for the righteous, even if there's a resurrection of the body subsequently. Um, Let's see. Let me uh, see what else I got here. Okay, from Randy. I have always been interested in the apparent cannibalism implied in the story of the Last Supper. Is this a type of reverse sacrifice? Is it unique to Christianity or from an older tradition? I think this is an unmistakable uh, remnant of the, uh, the fertility cult origin. It may have been present in the ancient Yahweh religion in which he was a dying and rising god, but Yahweh was... Uh, was uh, identified with Dionysus by various people in New Testament times. That's probably how uh, the the Jews that uh, celebrated the rites of Dionysus under uh, the persecuting eye of Antiochus Epiphanes in the um, second century BCE rationalized what they were doing. They figured, well, we're not really uh, switching gods. Uh, the Sabasius religion was based on identifying uh, Jehovah with Dionysus. So it wasn't that alien uh, to this ancient grassroots Judaism that had so much in common with, uh, with paganism because it simply had been pagan. It had been a Canaanite faith. Uh, and uh, either that or the the blood drinking, the flesh eating has been borrowed from other similar religions of dying and rising gods with which they were familiar, notably Dionysus and uh, Osiris. The devotees of Osiris would sell, he was the grain god, 
uh, fertility god, and so that uh, you, you would, uh, to honor him, you would drink beer or wine, both are attested, and as his blood and uh, bread as his body, because he is like John Barleycorn, the life of the fields, and uh, so the the blood of the grape is the blood of the god, and uh, the flesh of the grain is the flesh of the god, and uh, yeah, I, that is, I think, certain to be the background of the the uh, of the rite. I don't know if I would call it ritual cannibalism so much because as it is because you're you're talking about divine flesh instantiated in the fruit of the vine and of the fields. Uh, if Freud is right. All sacrifice did originally descend from a primordial, probably a repeated primordial, um, cannibalistic feast after the the sons of the head of the uh, anthropoid uh, horde turned on their their father uh, in order to gain access to his harem, and then. Uh, uh, ate the body and so forth. So it, it is possible, but that that's pretty speculative. Whereas it seems to me that the roots in the ancient fertility religion really govern the thing. It's been spiritualized away already in the Gospels. It's implicitly made into a new Passover feast, which it was not originally. And this is an attempt to uh, harmonize it with emerging rabbinic Judaism. But uh, the idea of blood drinking and flesh eating, that, that is just abhorrent to what we know as Judaism and could not have emerged from it. Whereas it was a customary part of these other religions uh, for which ancient Israelites definitely had a taste. Uh, they didn't mind using uh, the flesh and blood uh, consumption imagery because of this connection with the divine life of the fields and, and so forth. So I wouldn't say it's exactly cannibalism, but it, um, since you're not talking about eating people, but rather uh, the, uh, the flesh and blood of the God who is the life of nature. Let's see here. I guess that's going to be it for today. I may be having some trouble with the size of these files and uh, should probably keep it a bit short so uh, they uh, can be posted uh, more easily. But I'll try to be back again soon. These days I'm working on uh, my book, Holy Fable, and uh, subtitled uh, The Bible Undistorted by Faith. I think you're going to get a kick out of that. I'm getting closer to publishing my book, Moses and Minimalism. I'm just waiting for some uh, comments from a couple of scholars. And, of course, I've got uh, the pre I mean, I'm sorry, the Human Bible New Testament available. It's the traditional 27 books, so half the length of my pre-Nicene New Testament. And it has some new introductory material and uh, has the some revisions to the translation. Uh, and it's uh, 20 bucks from me. That's a little cheaper than it is on Amazon, though you can find it there. And uh, let's see, that includes postage, so you can buy them uh, from me through PayPal. Just indicate what you want, the title of the book, and make sure you include your uh, mailing address. 
I'm sending out a bunch of them. Uh, still got plenty, though. And, of course, I'll autograph it to you. Okay, I'll see you again soon on the next exciting episode of The Bible Geek. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn placed on the firing line. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine.